find in Job chapter 19. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 19. And we're going to be reading the first uh, 27 verses of Job chapter 19. Uh, this is Job once again responding to a, uh, one of the speeches of his friends, Bildad, uh, has spoken again and talked about God's punishment of the wicked, clearly indicting Job as being wicked and that he's suffering the punishment of God. And, uh, and Job, again, is going to agree in some ways, but yet uh, insists that he's, uh, he has not done anything wrong and, and yet through the, the despair of his sorrow breaks this brilliant, beautiful uh, light of faith and confidence. Let's pick it up then, Job chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you've cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and, the, and the, taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So far the reading of God's word, let's ask now for his blessing. 
God in heaven, we acknowledge that unless your spirit come, we will not be able to understand these things for the natural mind cannot understand the things of God. They must be spiritually revealed and discerned. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've given your spirit precisely to this end. I pray that the spirit would help us in these words to see our Lord Jesus Christ in his beauty and his glory and all that that means for us that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Communicate this truth to our heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, it is well known that the best way to highlight the beauty and brilliance of a diamond is to put it not only under a bright light, but against a dark backdrop. And here in Job chapter 19, we have a display of, of a beautiful, brilliant diamond of gospel truth, and it shines all the more brightly against the dark and devastating backdrop of Job's suffering. It's a wonderfully appropriate verse for us today against the backdrop of a devastating worldwide pandemic. We have the brilliance and the beauty of Easter shining all the more clearly. In the face of all that is being lost and undermined in the world today in ways that affect so many millions of people, we have here wonderful consolation and good news. A glorious affirmation uh, that we have a living Redeemer. And despite all the loss and alienation uh, that we might be experiencing today and that we will experience at death, Jesus, our Redeemer, lives. And we get to celebrate all the victory and all the blessings that He brings. We're going to look first of all at Job's condition and then Job's confession and then thirdly our consolation. Job's condition, and then his confession, and our consolation. In chapter 19, it seems quite clear that Job believes he's about to die. Uh, It seems that God has declared war on him. God has plucked him up like a tree. Um, And God now has has, uh, rallied his troops, and they are encamped against him. The end is near. Verse 12, his troops come on together. They've cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. It is now simply a matter of time before God fully and uh, finally breaks down the wall of Job's life and destroys him. And as Job contemplates his death, he is thinking about his tombstone, his epitaph. Oh, that I had, that my words were written, that they might be inscribed in a book. Um, He would be thinking about a, a scroll. But immediately that strikes him as not nearly permanent enough. And so he says in 24 that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in a rock forever. Maybe you've seen in an old cemetery uh, tombstones that are very large and with a good deal of writing on them. And that's what uh, Job is thinking of. A monument of some sort. A a testimony that's going to last through the centuries. Job has this feeling that his life, and specifically his suffering, requires an accounting. It has to matter. He can't just die and his memory and his name and his, um, his story just disappear. We have this sense that when there have been great wrongs, there needs to be a monument Something to, to 
keep this, this injustice from just disappearing. That would somehow be wrong. We, we need to preserve a place like Auschwitz. So the injustice that was committed there uh, can be told to future generations. Well, that Job has this sense that, that his life has to matter. His name and his integrity cannot disappear in the grave with his body. The story of what has happened to him and what God has done to him has to be preserved. Oh, that they were engraved in the rock forever. Why does Job feel this so deeply? Well, Job, as I said, he's sensing that he's about to die. And in chapter 19, Job really condenses the most painful aspects of that reality. In, in chapter 19, he's not really bewailing his, his, uh, the loss of, of his wealth so much or the, the loss of his, even his health. What he's bewailing is the, the loneliness and condemnation that he's feeling. Uh, there is undoubtedly loss. He's lost his possessions. He's lost his children. He's lost his health, his intimate friends and family. He's lost his status. Uh, just note the... The, the, really the tragedy here, Job says, my, my own maidservants treat me like a foreigner and my own personal servant, I need to beg him for mercy. He's lost his status. He once was a revered and respected man, but now he's despised. A suffering and death bring experiences of loss, don't they? We lose ability to do things we once loved to do. Uh, in death, we lose, we lose everything. Um, all of our possessions we leave behind. But it's the loneliness that Job particularly uh, speaks of here in chapter 19. In his book uh, entitled The Anatomy of Loneliness, uh, author Thomas Wolfe writes, the most tragic, sublime, and beautiful expression of loneliness which I have ever read is the book of Job. That's interesting. Listen as Job grieves his loneliness, his deep alienation from friends and family. Look at verse 13. He that is God has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. Verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I loved have turned against me. It's the, the pathos of this. Uh, he is so utterly alone. And suffering uh, easily does that. Uh, you maybe have noticed this when, they, when uh, someone close to you has, has lost maybe a, a husband or a wife or a child and, and you feel in some sense that there's opened up a chasm between you and that person. They are in some sense in a new strange land, a place where you can't go. You don't know how to access that. And if you're the person who is suffering deeply, you sense the same thing, that people want to reach out to you, people that used to be close to you, but they don't know how. Something has separated you. Well, well Job has that in spades uh, because everyone whom he loved not only don't know how to reach out to him, they don't want to reach out to him. They abhor him. They've abandoned him. He is completely, utterly alone. 
Dying also uh, carries that, um, that aspect to it. Uh, we don't, uh, every person dies in some sense alone. No matter how uh, loved you are, no matter, you might have your family all around your bed, the fact is when you walk across that river, they don't go with you. You take that journey without them. But nothing is worse in Job's experience than the experience of God being against him. And that's the first part of the, uh, the chapter, that, that God has counted Job as his adversary. Uh, God has done these things. God has, uh, has gathered his troop, and now they're, they're encamped against his tent, his little weak tent. All the hosts of God are now uh, ready to finish him off. It's, the, it's that sense of condemnation that's the most painful. Um, Ash writes this, the deepest question Job faces is, is God for me or against me? Ultimately, nothing else matters. That's exactly right, isn't it? It's, it's the most critical issue in every person's life. Is God for you or is God against you? Nothing else matters, ultimately, both for this life and the life to come. And suffering and dying has a way of bringing that issue into a very clear focus. When times are good, we're busy people. We're busy with many things, many things that, that seem very important and necessary to us. But when we are sick, really sick, uh, when we're maybe told that the disease is terminal, then the truly essential thing comes into focus. And nothing more essential, there's nothing more essential than this. Is God for me or not? Is He for me or against me? And it is exactly in that context, in the black night of Job's loss and loneliness and sense of condemnation, that he discovers this beautiful jewel of gospel hope and conviction. And so we come secondly to his confession, verse 25. Verse 25 begins with a strong contrast, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Um, some of the commentators point out that the word here uh, translated for in your Bible, for I know, that it's, it's, that's a weak translation. It's, it's, it's not inaccurate. It's just not strong enough. That the, the Hebrew is literally, as for me. And maybe it could be best translated, but as for me. It's intended to draw a line, a break, a sharp contrast. You have the same thing in Psalm 73, where Asaph begins Psalm 73, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then verse 2, you have this radical break. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. I almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And, and, and so we have the same sort of sharp break here. Job has been speaking about his, his loss, his loneliness, his sense of a deep anxiety because God seems to be against him. But then there's this break. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Howell Jones says some divine illumination 
has broken through the dark night of his sorrow. And Job comes across a deep, unexpected, but glorious conviction. And that's the wonderful thing to see here. Job has a conviction. I know, he says. Well, what an unexpected and wonderful thing for Job to say. Because his world is just overrun with things he doesn't know. He doesn't know about the conversation that took place in heaven that we read about in chapters 1 and 2. He doesn't know why God is doing these things to him. He cannot figure it out. He doesn't know why his friends uh, abandon him and torment him. It makes no sense to him. He doesn't know how the story is going to end. It seems like it's simply going to end with his death. But he doesn't know. His world is wrapped in mystery. He's drowning in a sea of unanswered questions. Everything that he doesn't know, it defines his life. But now suddenly there's this rock of conviction. Something he knows. And he knows it with all the conviction and and the confidence of his being. He's, he's absolutely sure of this thing. What does he know? Well, there are three things that make up this rock of conviction. He knows that he has a Redeemer. And he knows that because of that Redeemer, he's going to be vindicated. The Redeemer is going to act on his behalf. And he knows, thirdly, that he is going to receive a reward. Let's look at those together. I know... That my Redeemer lives. Now before we interpret that word Redeemer from our New Testament perspective, uh, we need to just hear it from Job's perspective. What does Job mean by the term Redeemer? Well, it is a phrase that uh, obviously was common already in those days, even before it was inscribed into the law of Moses. This was a common um, role in the society, in the community. That there was these, these persons called redeemers. It would be someone who um, was tied to you by a solemn covenant. So that their responsibility was a true legal obligation. Uh, it was usually a relative. And this relative had the legal responsibility to act on your behalf. To protect you or your estate or your name uh, in a time of loss or injustice. So Christopher Ash writes, quote, If you were murdered, your Redeemer saw to it that your murder was punished, that, that, that the justice was served on your behalf. If your share in the promised land was under threat, he safeguarded it. If your widowed wife was childless, he was responsible to provide her with a child so that your name and portion in the land might continue. You see, the, the Redeemer is called upon precisely in the instance of loss. Loss of life, loss of property, loss of posterity. And Job, you see, has lost all of those things. He's lost all of his property. He owns, he has nothing left. In the death of all of his children, he has lost his posterity. His name will be cut off when he dies. And he has in every meaningful way lost his very own life. All that's left is the burial. 
But in the face, you see, of this overwhelming loss, Job discovers exactly the one thing that can respond to the loss, that can repair the loss. He's found a redeemer, someone bound to him by covenant, someone with the legal responsibility and ability to protect him from all that he has seemed to have lost. There's a kinsman redeemer, a brother born for adversity. And there are things about this redeemer that saturate this knowledge with hope. One, I know that my redeemer lives. It's a living redeemer. Now, that might not strike us as that big a deal, but... um, a dead redeemer, of course, could do no good whatsoever. But, but Job isn't just saying that he knows that his redeemer is living and breathing. But, but the idea is that he ever lives. That's the sense of the term. That this is a living redeemer who will never die. Now, now clearly Job is not thinking merely of a man. All men die. But his conviction, and this is the amazing thing that God has done for him in in, in giving him this gift of faith, Job is convinced that in heaven itself, in the presence of God, stands a person who will never die, and that person is bound to Job by covenant oath and has taken Job's cause and Job's concern to himself. And he will never die. Which means, consequently, that Job's cause will not be lost. There's something more permanent than a a, a rock with with Job's words inscribed in lead. Something vastly more permanent, vastly more helpful. An ever-living Redeemer. Howell Jones says, since my Redeemer lives, it doesn't matter if I am dying There is someone who is for me and who will not forget me, who is standing for me and will act on my behalf. Now, Job clearly does not have the insight that New Testament saints have. He doesn't know the name of this Redeemer. He doesn't know how this could possibly be true. But God has given him the eyes of faith. And and Job professes things that are deeper and truer even than he understood, which is not unusual for Old Testament prophets. They would prophesy things that were deeper and truer than even they could grasp. Isaiah chapter 53, a great example, as Isaiah prophesies about this suffering servant. And we don't really understand all that that means until Jesus appears on the scene and we see Jesus live out Isaiah chapter 53. Well, Job is professing things here by faith but things that are deeper and truer than he knows. But because, you see, God has revealed it to him, Job knows it's true. He knows it's true. And it's not just true for him, not just true generically, generally, it is true specifically. It is true personally. It's for him. My Redeemer lives. It's not only a living Redeemer, but a personal Redeemer. My Redeemer lives. That word, that that little word, my, so small, but it's so incredibly important. It makes all the difference. You see, what what matters, friends, when 
when you and I come to the moment of our death, and we will, unless Jesus returns, but, but also when we're in times of suffering, but the, but the issue will be, you see, not just is there a Redeemer, the issue will be, is He my Redeemer? Is He your Redeemer? Has He undertaken my cause? Has He taken responsibility for my eternal well-being? Is He willing to own you? You personally and individually to claim you and to redeem your life from eternal death and loss. That's the issue. And Job, by faith, you see, is able to say, yes, he is. He is. He's willing. He's my Redeemer. He's bound himself to me. My Redeemer lives. And, and, and this Redeemer will act. My Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. He will take action. The meaning of stand here, uh, the word could also be translated, He will stand up. It pertains to a courtroom. Uh, Job was a judge, if you remember. Uh, he, He knows this scene well. And in the courtroom, witnesses stand to give their testimony. And Job says, my Redeemer is going to stand up in the courtroom and he's going to testify for me. He will stand up and vindicate me. See, one of the, one of the things that Job has been wrestling with throughout this book is he's been wrestling with how, how can I engage with God and have a meeting with God? Um, he, is, he is the highest God in the highest heaven, uh, eternal. I can't just go to him. In, in, in chapter 9, remember, he says, oh, that there were an arbiter, a mediator, someone to lay his hand upon us both, someone to reconcile God and man. Well, now, Job says, oh, that, that, that person is here. My Redeemer is going to stand. The, the words at the last tell us that Job understands that in the great trial of his life, when when his righteousness is being uh, discerned and adjudicated, the word and testimony of his Redeemer will be the last word. After the Redeemer speaks, there will be no more witnesses, no more testimony given. His testimony will both conclude the trial and seal the verdict. And the verdict will be innocent, righteous, justified. And the reason we know that that's Job's confidence is that Job believes, Job knows that he will receive the reward of the righteous. The reward is seeing God. Verse 26, After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Now there are a lot of um, issues in the translation that commentators um, wrestle with, and um, if you do, if you want to dig into that, you're free to do that. One of the questions is, is Job talking about the end of time or the end of the book? So when he says, in my flesh, 
uh, I shall see God. Does he mean uh, in the end of the book when God appears and Job says, now my eyes have seen you and Job is vindicated by God at the end of his life and the end of his book? We'll see that. Or does Job mean more than that? Does he mean that, that literally um, when his flesh has been, dis- his skin has been destroyed and, and, and he's talking about a resurrected body now, seeing God uh, in the new heaven and, and the new earth? Well, I, I think um, we don't need to draw a line between the two. Uh, Job is clearly vindicated at the end of the book, but the, but the book of Job is written not just for Job, it's written for us. And, and as we've seen before, uh, it, it is pointing us to greater and, and, uh, and grander and eternal things. The essential thing here to realize is Job's conviction. I shall see God. You see, because that matters because that is the reward of the righteous. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. It's the desire of the saints. One thing I've asked, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. But you see, Job knows this. He knows in the marrow of his bones that he shall receive the reward of the righteous. He shall see God. And it will happen to him. In my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes behold, and not another. I shall see God. That's his conviction. Now again, the, the wonder is, um, not only will he see God, because we know, don't we, that at the last day when Jesus returns, every eye will see him, and every knee shall bow. Whether they belong to Jesus or don't belong to Jesus, everyone will see Jesus. And so Job's, uh, his, his confidence and assurance here is not just that he will see God, but, but that he will see God in a particular way. And, and there's hints in the text that speak to that. The words for myself can also be translated on my side. I shall see God on my side. Uh, the word another is translated in other places as stranger. So when he says, and not another, uh, he might very well be saying, and not as a stranger. You see, Job believes that when he sees God, he will see God uh, as a friend of God. He will see God as one known by God. God will not say to Job, depart from me, I never knew you. He will not be a stranger to God. When he sees God, he will be received as a beloved child, as a friend. God is for him, not against him. Now, how can Job say that when all the evidence seems so clearly, irrefutably, to point to the fact that God is actually against him. Job himself has just confessed in chapter 19, God is against me. Why would he say that? Because all the evidence points to it. How else do you make sense of what has happened to Job? God seems to be against him. Nothing could be more clear to the human eye. That's what his friends are just saying, Job, wake up. We, we promise you, God is against you. And the reason he's against you is because you've sinned and he's a holy God. So you, you must repent and turn from your sin and then God will be for you. But as it stands, he's clearly against you. 
And so Job's own sense is that God is against him. All the evidence seems to be saying so. All of his friends are saying that God is against him. So now how can he confidently say that I will see God and receive the reward of the righteous and that God is actually for me? Well, it's all because of the Redeemer. It's all because of the Redeemer. It's because his Redeemer lives, ever lives. And his Redeemer stands, rises in the very presence of God and intercedes for him. And his intercession is effective. His word will be the last word and the concluding word, the word that seals the verdict. The word that reconciles God and man. That's why Job knows he will see God. That's why he knows that God is for him. Because his Redeemer lives. And it's so overwhelmingly beautiful to Job in the midst of his grief and all that he's lost. And and all that he had feared that God was truly against him. Notice what he says. My heart faints within me. It's, It's... It's too much. It's too good. It's too overwhelming. The the weight of the glory of this thought that in spite of all the seeming evidence to the contrary, God is actually for him. And there is a Redeemer who will protect him and keep him from suffering all the loss that that seemed to be defined in his life. There was a a redeemer who would reconcile him to God. There was a a redeemer who would make all things right. And friends, that is our consolation, isn't it? This is precisely how we should feel about the message of Easter. We should should have this sense that the, the glory, the weight of the glory is too much. Because you see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is God's own pronouncement over this wicked and dying world that God has raised us up a redeemer. The New Testament rings with that message. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's the gospel. That God has given us a redeemer who's rescued us from under the condemnation of the law that we justly deserved and has instead made us children of God, reconciled us to the Father. And he is an ever-living redeemer. Paul says in Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Jesus introduces himself in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, that uh, behold, I died, but I am the living one. And I live forevermore. Which means you see that that no matter how many eons of time before a Christ returns, you will not be forgotten. Your cause will not be lost. That your Redeemer ever lives standing in the presence of God and He makes intercession for you. That's what we read in Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He always lives. 
to make intercession for you. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to be your redeemer, to be the one who intercedes for you. If you belong to him, you see, and so that's the question that remains, the, the, the essential question, is he your redeemer? It's not enough to say, yes, I believe he is a redeemer. You can look at the, at the Easter message and, and believe, yeah, I believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. I believe Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. I believe that Jesus is able to save um, those who come to God through him. And yet, and yet stop short of saying, and he's my redeemer. But you see, that's where all the consolation is. Now, why would we hesitate to say that? Well, the devil and, and our own conscience could, could say things to us like this. Um, you know, get serious. Job was a righteous man. And so are many others. It makes sense that Jesus would be a redeemer for Job and, and others like him. People who are serious about their faith. People who, who really care about the things of God and are making progress in godliness. But look at you. Look what a great sinner you are. You do things that are awful. Things that are so clearly contrary to God's will. And you do them gladly. You're not like Job. And so you can maybe hope that Jesus uh, might be willing to be your redeemer. But don't, don't pretend to have a conviction about it. But you see, this is precisely the glory of our Redeemer, isn't it? Do you remember what Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah chapter 53, that wonderful chapter about our suffering servant who bore our sins, carried our sorrows, pleased the Lord to crush him, to lay our iniquities on Jesus? You remember all that? Do you know how it ends? The last words in Isaiah chapter 53 are this. He, that is Jesus, bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus makes intercession for the transgressors. And you see, since he bore our sin in his body, his intercession will always produce the verdict of righteousness. Every single time. Jesus will never stand before his Father and say, Father, this one is mine. And the Father say, Jesus, you accomplished so much. But against that mountain of perversion and mountain of sin, against love and truth and goodness and mercy, um, I I'm sorry, it's just not enough. It'll never, ever happen. Jesus saves to the uttermost all who come to God in Him. He was delivered up for our trespasses, Paul says in Romans 4.25, and raised for our justification. Jesus was raised from the dead specifically that He might stand in the presence of the Father and gain for you the verdict, innocent, righteous, just. That's why He was raised from the dead. That's why Easter matters. You know, Paul has this interesting statement in uh, Romans 10, verse 9. 
Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. And I remember uh, thinking, well, why does Paul say that? Why does he say that you need to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Why not believe in your heart that he was born of a virgin? Why not believe in your heart that he was the very son of God? That would seem to be a really important thing to believe. Well, the reason Paul says that you need to believe that God raised him from the dead is because that encapsulates all of it. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Jesus is vindicated as the virgin-born Son of God. And Jesus is vindicated as the one who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice. And Jesus is now established as the Redeemer of God's elect. A Redeemer of sinners. One who has bound himself to you with covenant oath, an oath sealed with his own blood. One who has committed himself to your cause and he will never give it away, ever let it go. He has sworn his name. He has bound his honor to your eternal good. Think of that. Jesus, the Son of God, has bound himself, bound his honor to your eternal good. He's sworn to reclaim all that has been lost and ruined by your sin and the fall. He's reconciled you to the Father, made you an adopted child, pronounced you righteous in the court of heaven, and promises that one day you will receive the reward of the righteous. You will see God. You, in your own flesh, your own eyes, will see God. You see, if you believe that, you will be saved because that's the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Christopher Ashe says, each of us who suffers or cares for another who suffers asks, why has this happened? Is God for me or against me? As we hear Job's faith in these words, we can bring our pain to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though our life may be ebbing away. And friend, yours is, and mine is too. It's ebbing away. Even if our wick is burning low, we too may say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh, I shall see God and not as a stranger. That's the message of Easter. That's, that's why we should sing and rejoice and walk with confidence as we live and by God's um, providence die. Right? Easter means that God in Jesus Christ is for you. The great ultimate question of your life is answered in Jesus. Is God for you or against you? And it all depends. Are you in Christ? Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you confess your need of him? Do you run and embrace him knowing that you're sinful? Knowing that there's perversion still within you and pride and, and anger and lust and greed and covetousness and, and idolatry. And yet Jesus makes intercession for transgressors. And so you run to him. Friend, if you do, 
you have warrant to say, I know. Because God has promised it to be so. And no matter how, what loss you face in your life, no matter how alienated you might feel from your friends or even from God, the fact that your Redeemer lives means that you, are, you will suffer no ultimate loss and you are never alone. Even when you walk across the river of death, you do not go alone. Jesus, your Redeemer, walks with you. He is always your Redeemer. Always with you. Always for you. May God grant you the same conviction. My Redeemer lives. And because He lives, I too shall live. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, what a wonderful rock of assurance that we have in Jesus, the living one. And though the mountains should tremble and quake and the seas roar and the mountains fall into the midst of the sea, we shall not fear. For in Jesus Christ, our God is with us. And He's our fortress. We have a Redeemer. Our Lord Jesus Christ who was put to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification, whoever lives to intercede for us. What an astounding thought that Jesus Christ would take our name upon his lips before his Father in heaven, and that's precisely what he does. And he takes our cause and our life and all the loss that we deserve and by his own victory over death. We are reconciled with our Father and the law is nailed to the cross and all of our sins are washed away and we are adopted as the children of God and we are promised to be heirs with Christ and death cannot destroy any good thing that Jesus intends to give us. In fact, death must bow to its master and carry us into his presence. Father, I pray for your people today. Pray for those, Lord, who might be listening who've never really considered is Jesus my redeemer. Father, I pray that your, your Holy Spirit would not let them rest until they come to a conclusion. And that Jesus promises that if they turn to him, he will happily be their redeemer. He delights to save transgressors. May we believe the gospel today and by faith, Lord, have this conviction that Jesus is my redeemer. For those who are suffering, for those who are dying, oh Lord, I pray that they would be buoyed by this wonderful conviction and confidence that you, Lord, our, our Redeemer, will never leave us. You are always eternally for us, that all that God is and all of his beauty and all of his righteousness and justice and power, all of that now is for us and our good in Christ Jesus. May we live in that confidence and fear nothing then, for we can lose nothing in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.
We pray it in his name. Amen.